chapter 22. As we consider our, uh, continue our study of Luke's gospel here, we find ourselves in a, I think, a very unique and powerful passage, beginning in verse 39, as we follow Jesus to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And I trust that the Lord would like to show us the cost of our salvation, the love of our Savior, even as he prays for the work he has to do. So you would be well served to open your Bibles and keep it open for the rest of our time together in Luke 22. You'll find that on page 882 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along there. And we'll begin this morning in verse 39. Hear now the Word of God. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. The disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Our Father, we're thankful now for your word in which we can consider. We ask that you would, in your kindness to us, reveal to us the mystery of the cost of our salvation. And that because Christ was willing and knowingly paid the cost, out of his great love for you and for us, to redeem us, that truth might be take its rightful place in our hearts. It's the foundation upon which we live all life. And so we want to see Jesus this morning. Help us through your spirit and in your word we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was on October 13, 1815, when Joachim Marat, the Marshal of France and the King of Naples, serving under Napoleon, was captured and sentenced to death. The day of his death, Marat cut a lock of his curly hair off and handed it to the officer in charge of his guard, along with a letter that he had written to his wife and, and asked that this be delivered to her. And then as a gesture of goodwill to this officer, he took off his watch and gave it to him as a gift. But before doing so, he opened this tiny little lid in his watch. And inside there, he took out a, a carnelian on which was carved the portrait of his wife. And he held that tightly in his hand as he followed the soldiers into the courtyard. There he was offered a chair and a blindfold. He refused both, saying he'd rather die standing with his eyes open. But he did have one last request that was granted to him. He said, I have commanded many in battle, and now I would like to give the word of command for the last time. 
And so Marat stood against the castle wall, and there in a loud, clear voice, he announced, soldiers, form line. Six soldiers drew themselves up within about 10 feet of him. He then declared, prepare arms, present. And the soldiers pointed their muskets at him. Then Marat said, aim at the heart, save the face, with a slight smile. And then he held up his hand, looked at the, for the final time at the portrait of his wife, and he issued his final command, fire. And they did. Such accounts of bravery in the face of death, uh, they, they may be rare, but they're not unique. There have been other men and women like Marat before, haven't there? Many, many heroes, many, many people of stories long ago who bravely faced their execution. You think of Socrates, for instance, who's forced to drink the hemlock and, and you know, speaking ironically all the way up until the end. Or, I don't know, you think of Daniel facing the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing the furnace. And they did so with great bravery and courage, didn't they? I like the story of Polycarp. In fact, you can think of many, of course, Christian martyrs who have faced arena and, and stake and did so with courage and boldness. Polycarp did so when he was 86 years old in the year 160 AD. Polycarp's an interesting individual because he was a disciple of John the Apostle. And uh, he was brought before the proconsul at 86, and the proconsul said to him, Reproach Christ and live. Polycarp replied, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals, the proconsul said. Then call them, Polycarp replied. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned, he threatened. Which Polycarp explained, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And there he was killed after 86 years of following Jesus. And we go on and on with stories like this, can't we? We, we know many of them, perhaps. It, it's, however, in stunning contrast, I think, that we come to a, a very challenging passage this morning where Jesus is awaiting his execution, just will happen within hours, and we find him terrified. We find him, as Luke says, in agony, begging repeatedly for mercy. And, and I, I, this is a uh, Jesus we are unfamiliar with. It is unlike anything that we have seen before. As I mentioned, we, this has been a methodical study of Luke's gospel. I won't even tell you how long we've been in Luke, okay? But we go verse by verse in the longest book in the New Testament, and what we always find Jesus to be fearless. We always find him to be assured and confident and calm, right? Remember after 40 days of fasting, he stands face to face with Satan himself, unintimidated, resolved, and then he goes home and he preaches this sermon that's so convicting, they try to, his whole townspeople, they try to throw him off a cliff and kill him, and then shortly thereafter, he's in Capernaum and he's preaching a sermon, and this demoniac in the middle of the sermon begins to yell and scream, and Jesus, unflustered, simply says, be quiet, or, you, or remember, remember when he was traveling about, forgiving sin, 
of those who had given themselves to it or extending a tender touch of healing or with unimaginable authority. He calls for the dead to rise again and again and again. We've seen him come, a sea, an amazed and eager crowd on a hillside with his authoritative teaching. We've, he's confronted the powerful and fearlessly pronounced woe after woe upon them. And, and even in the recent weeks and months, we've seen him stand against everyone with whip in hand, Clearing the temple. If it even comes to his own death, Jesus has been fearless. He has predicted it again and again. Way back in Luke chapter 9, he announced that he is going to die. And then in verse 51, that great hinge verse in Luke's gospel, the Bible says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's marching on to his death. And then in Luke 18, right before he ascends up into the holy city, he gathers his apostles together and says, we are going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. He is always in control, always full of power, always bold and courageous. And now we follow him to this moonlit garden among the olive trees, and his soul is filled with this crushing anguish. There is a consuming fear upon the Lord. Mark tells us that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. One translation puts it this way. He began to be gripped by a shuddering terror. And he even turns to his disciples, you know, if you put all the counts together, and he, and he says to them, perhaps in a, a wavering voice, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Right? This is a Jesus we have not seen before. And I, I don't know, as I studied it, I have felt unprepared for it. I feel, like, I feel like this is holy ground in which the veil is pulled back and we are able to just take a glimpse of the deep mystery and the great suffering that Christ endured for our salvation. In fact, I think this is what we learn from this passage. We learn, if you want to say, what's this passage about? This passage is about the unmeasurable love of Jesus and obedience to the Father to bring about your redemption. He'll pay that cost. I like how Spurgeon put it long ago. He said, since it would not be possible for any believer to know for himself all that our Lord endured, it is therefore clearly far beyond the preacher's capacity to set it forth to you. Jesus himself must give you access to the wonders of Gethsemane. As for me, I can but invite you to enter the garden. And that's what we aim to do today. We want to enter into this garden, and I hope, and it's been my prayer this week, that God would fill our hearts with awesome wonder at the love of the Lord Jesus and the cost that he would bear in order to redeem people like you and I. But even in the midst of that, you know, as I've already shared with you, this is the start of prayer week for us in Hamilton Baptist Church. And we'll see in this passage that Jesus prays, doesn't he? And not only does Jesus pray, he exhorts his followers to pray. And so as we look at what Jesus did for us, we want to in particular this morning pull out truths about prayer that we might understand prayer more deeply and embrace it more obediently. So consider these five truths of prayer in this story of Jesus in Gethsemane. The first is you see that Jesus shows us that there is passion in prayer. Look at verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. 
Now, we know uh, that this place where he's at is, is called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's on the Mount of Olives. Luke tells us that this was his custom, that Jesus loved this, this little garden. It seemed to be a secret garden where Jesus would often withdraw with his disciples in order to, to spend time in prayer. If you read the end of Luke 21... You see that Jesus, after uh, every night in the Passion Week, it seems that Jesus would finish his teaching in the temple and descend down uh, Jerusalem and then climb up the Mount of Olives, and there he would finish his night in prayer with the Father. He's constantly finding this place of prayer. It's his place of secret prayer. I wonder, do you have a place of prayer? Do you have a, a place where you can withdraw and pray free from distractions and schedules and email and text messages? That you could just be alone with God. And Jesus um, seemed to think that was a good idea. That might be something for you to consider as Christ models that for us. And he goes and he finds this place to pray. But he doesn't go alone, as you see there in verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, that is his apostles, pray that you might not enter into temptation. So this is not simply a time of prayer for Jesus. It's an exhortation for the Jesus' followers to pray, just like Jesus is about to, as you see in verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And so knowing what's what's awaiting Jesus, knowing the temptations that are going to come upon him, he, he wants one last time, he seeks the Father in prayer. You notice, by the way, he knelt in prayer. That's a, a position of submission, isn't it? That he gets down on his knees. Do you ever kneel when you pray? So some of us did that as kids, maybe, but now that we're adults, we, do. we don't kneel anymore. I wonder, we have adult Jesus here, by the way, and, and he's on his knees, and I wonder if that would, that would be helpful for us as well. I wonder if he's modeling something for us. You know, a lot of times we think, you know, our body follows our heart, we're feeling something and we respond physically. I think quite often it's the opposite, that we, we do something physically in order to get our heart engaged. And so you might do well to kneel, even if you don't feel it, in order to teach your heart to submit. Some of you raise your hands in worship. I raise my hands in worship not because my heart always feels it, but I want my heart to feel it. And so I raise my hands in order to tell my heart, you should engage in the truths in which we are praising God for. And Jesus here models this. He, he, he kneels down before the Lord and, and he prays in submission to God. But Matthew's account is interesting because it captures, I think, more details of what Jesus is doing. Matthew kind of expresses the emotion behind it. He says he fell on his face and prayed. And it's almost as if the weight of the future anguish becomes a burden too great for Jesus to bear, and it sends him stumbling to the dirt. And with his face in the ground, he pours out his heart to God in verse 42, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As great suffering approaches, his shadow is cast upon Jesus, and he repeatedly asks for another way. Is there another way? Can we do this some other way? Can you take this cup from me? Now, we're going to return to the content of that prayer later on, but notice the response to Jesus' prayer in verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. 
Notice Luke says the Lord was in agony. Some translations say he was in anguish. So please, I know we've seen the stained glass windows and the, the portraits hanging on the wall with Jesus there at the rock and the ray of lights are coming down. And we kind of imagine Jesus praying like, oh, dear Father, please remove this cup from me. But, you, of course, your will is what I want. That's not what's happening here at all. He's in agony. He's in anguish. He says, I feel so overwhelmed that, that I feel like I'm dying. In fact, it almost seems like it's already started. For verse 44 says, he's sweating blood. There's a rare medical condition that under such intense fear, people have been known to have their capillaries dilate, uh, contract and dilate so quickly that, blood, that they'll burst and blood will uh, seep into the sweat glands and they will literally sweat blood through their, through their pores. That's what Christ is experiencing here. And so when he, so he says just a, little, a couple hours ago at the Lord's Supper, he holds the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I'm going to spill my blood for you. He begins to spill his blood even before he's arrested as he begins to bear the weight of our atonement. Now, in light of all this truth, you have to appreciate the honesty of Scripture, don't you? Now that over and over, Scripture shows itself to be presenting truth to us because if you are making up a religion making up a story to promote your religion, you don't make the hero in fearful agony pleading for another way. It's totally, completely unique in all religions to have the, the center of that religion being so terrified as to what he must do. Now, I know us kind of modern Westerners, we think, well, this kind of makes them relatable. We kind of like this. But please understand, in every culture in Jesus' day, and every culture for centuries, in fact, most cultures today, a great leader worthy of following should not act like this. And, and the only reason to include this story is because it happened. Because it's true. And you notice, there's, it's, not, it's never even, I appreciate it, it's not even tied up nice and neat and, uh, and a, with a bow at the end. It's, it, we don't read, then Jesus remembered, oh yes, all things work together for those who love God, of course. And he rose confidently with a smile upon his face and said, let's be crucified, right? There's none of that, is there? There's no real conclusion to it as this man just struggles in prayer. I tell you, never has anyone faced such deep sorrow or foreboding future. Never has anyone faced such temptation as our Lord did in the garden. And so he prays. You notice he doesn't curse God. He doesn't question God's goodness. He doesn't shake it, the proverbial fist at heaven. But he prays. He pleads with God in the midst of his agony. I wonder, have you ever been there? Have you ever had a moment like this? Maybe some of you encounter them even now. Those sleepless nights when someone says to you those words, you're fired. Right? Or it's cancer. Or there's been a car accident. Or your baby didn't make it. Or I want a divorce. I've been having an affair. Mom and dad, I don't, I don't love Jesus anymore. What do you do? How do you endure such events? What you do as Hannah did when she was without a child. She went to God and prayed. You do as Hezekiah did when surrounded by a terrible army. You pray. You do as Jehoshaphat did when he faced military defeat. He prayed, oh Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. James says to the wounded and troubling early church, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. 
we pray, we say, Father, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to bear that weight. And we take it and we place it upon him. And when you do, please understand, you do not walk a path alone. Jesus Christ has blazed this trail already for you. And you fall on your knees alongside your Savior and you plead with your Father as our Lord has. And there, I believe, though your circumstances may not change, you will find strength. Consider, secondly, the strength in prayer. You notice at least the partial response to Jesus' prayer recorded there in verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. I I think this is extraordinary. I I I trust that angel's aid is where Jesus would find the strength to endure the torment in which he is about to endure, about to enter. You notice, by the way, Jesus doesn't get what he asks for. The cup does not get removed from him. His request was denied. That will be clear in just minutes. In the next passage that we look at, when Judas and his friends show up, the the cup is thrust into Jesus' hand to, to drink. But, and so you, you see that, that if the Lord's deepest desires are not answered, right, there'll be times when our deepest desires in prayer are not answered. God may not change your circumstances. Sometimes he will. Sometimes he will not. But often, you know what he does? He gives you strength to get through them. Is that not what's happening with Jesus? Right? He has a different plan. He has a difficult plan. He has a bitter plan, a hard plan, but it's a better plan. And God says, you come to me, you let me know, and I, I'm going to provide strength for you. Uh, you're you're going to experience the presence of God in the midst of that. Paul says, I fellowship with Jesus in my suffering when I pray. How many, of, how many Christians can testify to this as you've gone through your Gethsemane experiences, your dark times? How many people have told you, I can feel people praying for for me. I feel the strength. God's going to get me through this. God's giving me strength, so keep praying. It seems that's what's happening in Jesus. He's being strengthened there in verse 43. But notice the angel doesn't solve his problems. Verse 44 says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This is interesting to me. Notice that he doesn't sweat blood and pray earnestly and in agony and response, the angel comes to strengthen him. The angel comes to strengthen him and then he's in agony. Then he prays more earnestly. Then he sweats blood out of his pores. And that makes me wonder what would have happened if the angel never showed up if sweating blood is what you do once you're strengthened. This Scottish pastor some couple hundred years ago, Alexander White, said, when I get to heaven, he said, the first person, of course, I want to see is Jesus. I want to talk to Jesus. But he says, the next conversation I want to have is with that angel who met Jesus in the garden. He said, who knows what depths of suffering this angel came to witness. Jesus, of course, will finally rise from his prayer, will he? And the shuddering terror will be passed. He will be composed as he prepares to drink the cup that the Lord has for him, which leads us to point number three, the content of Jesus' prayer there in verse 42. He prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I, I've commented that, that Jesus' distress here is, is shocking to me. It might be shocking to you as well. 
But I wonder if it was shocking to Jesus too. Again, I, I found great joy in kind of, or not joy, but very, uh, intrigue, if you will, or uh, putting the, the, the parallel accounts together. And Mark says, as Jesus drew near, he began, I think that's key, as he drew near to pray, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. So he's coming to pray, and once he starts to pray, that's when the distress comes on him. That's when the trouble comes on him. It's almost as if the trouble and distress wasn't there until he drew near. In fact, if you read the other accounts, you know what he's doing right before this? He was singing hymns. They're walking to Gethsemane for this time of prayer with song and praise upon their lips. And yet uh, he gets there and he starts to pray and he becomes greatly distressed. In fact, some translations translate that word astonished. In fact, most of the time that word is translated astonished. Jesus began to be greatly astonished. Uh, King James, if you're following along, and at least you're reading Mark's gospel, you, you may know this. He began to be sore amazed or sorely amazed. That raises the question, what, what can shock Jesus? Jesus. What can astonish Jesus in a, in a negative way to send the Son of God reeling? It's, it, it, it's almost as if like Jesus is, you know, like you're, pretend for instance, you're coming home after a long day at work. You're driving home. You're excited to be with your family, your spouse, and your children. You can't wait to get home, and you're looking forward to that. And you pull up to the house, and right before the house, there's a car accident. And, and there's an ambulance and you recognize that's your wife's car, your husband's car, your teenage son's car. And you see a paramedic, and they're performing CPR on a body in the street. And you just feel nauseous, and like the breath has been sucked out of you, and you feel this crushing weight of despair. Jesus, listen, he's singing hymns, walking to Gethsemane, totally in control. And now he's suddenly weeping. And the Bible says he's shouting. Hebrews chapter 5 says he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the only one who can save him from death. What's going on? Well, one commentator I think is spot on when he says, Jesus entered the garden to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened before him. Christ says, okay, the betrayal's coming. I'm going to go one last time. I'm going to go home. I'm going to be with the Father. I'm going to go pray with him. I need to get alone with my, my Father and uh, just kind of get, get strength from him and talk to him and uh, fellowship with him. And every time up to this point when Jesus prays, it's like heaven opens up and the love fills his heart. And he, he feels like he's back in heaven right there with the Father, communing with the Father. And he, he, he draws near to the Father. He turns to him in prayer. And rather than heaven opening before him, hell is there awaiting for him. And he stares into the abyss, to the bottomless chasm. He stares into what he says is the cup. And the Bible tells us repeatedly throughout the Old Testament and even in the New, the cup is a reference to the divine judgment on sinners. The cup set before Jesus is a cup that you have prepared by your sin. The Bible says in Psalm 75, for the hand of the Lord, there is a cup of foaming wine and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. Or elsewhere in the Psalter, it says fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. 
Ezekiel says, you will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation. You will drink it and drain it dry. Then you will gnaw at its shards and beat your breast in anguish. Isaiah 51, it is the cup of fury that makes one stagger. And I think it is no wonder that the Lord sees this cup and he stumbles down to the ground. It is not that he's afraid to die. It's a, his fear is that the cup he must drink, the, the, the wrath of God upon sinners, he must take before into himself. He must bear that wrath. And it's, it's almost as if Jesus draws in prayer and God sets down the cup right before him that he might know what he's about to do. At least Jonathan Edwards, uh, the American pastor of old said, when he's preaching on this passage, he has helped me so much in understanding it. He said, God the Father set the cup down before him. Vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, Christ was going to be cast into the dreadful furnace of wrath, and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfold, as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, that he might not do so, God first brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace, that he might look in and view its fierce and raging flames and the glowing of its heat and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners, knowing what it was. See, God's given him a foretaste of what he's about to do. He's set it before him. This is what it's going to be like. This is what you're going to experience. Do you know what you're going to do? And, and I, I think he does this so Christ will take it knowingly. He says, okay, I want you to sit and consider what, what you are doing to see if you are willing to do so. And of course, of course Christ didn't have to. You know that the soldiers aren't there. Not yet. You know what the disciples are doing. They're all sleeping. How easy would it for him to look in that cup and say, no way. And just get up and walk away and disappear. I'm not going to do it. But knowing the cost, he takes it anyway. And the fact that he knows the cost, it makes it a far greater act of obedience and love. Right? Do you see what kind of love Christ has that he would take this cup for you, knowing it full well? Imagine uh, for a moment that you were... Um, at a train track, and there was a child playing on the train track, and you see this train coming by full speed, and this child is oblivious to it, and you, being the courageous and brave individual you are, you throw yourself at this child the second before that train comes by, and you, you tackle the child, and you go off the other side of the, the train tracks, and, and everybody sees you, right, and, and, and your, your face is on the paper, and, and you're on Oprah or Dr. Phil's or whatever it is, and, and you're the hero, and what bravery, and what courage. I mean, I can't believe you would risk your life for this child. Well, change the story. Imagine that I told you in exactly one week there's going to be a child playing on this train track, and you're going to be able to save this child if you jump at the last second. But please understand there's no guarantee that you will survive. Well, what do you do for the next week? Right? Well, you, th you think about what it would be like to die. You think about your wife or your husband you leave behind, your children that you would leave as orphans. You, you think, well, maybe I'll survive, but maybe I'll 
suffer unthinkable injuries. Maybe I'll be paralyzed for the rest of my life. This, this you know, tons of steel bearing into my body. Maybe, maybe you go to the train track and, and you, you just kind of watch it fly by that particular part of the track and you think, how in the world am I going to jump in front of that? It's moving so fast. And then the time comes the pointed hour, and you go to that track after many sleepless nights, and after considering all the costs before you, there the child is, and then you jump? That's courage, right? That's boldness. That's love. You see what God is doing for the Lord. He says, will you take this knowing what it is? Will you take this willingly and knowingly? Edward says, how natural would it have been if Jesus said, why should I, who am infinitely more honorable than all the angels of heaven, plunge myself into such dreadful torments for those who deserve divine justice? Why should I, who have been living from eternity in the enjoyment of the Father's love, go cast myself in such a furnace for them who do not even love me? Why should I yield myself to be crushed by the weight of divine wrath for them who will not even stay awake with me in the hour of my greatest need? They do not deserve any union with me. They never did and never will do anything to recommend themselves to me. How appropriate and right would it be for the Lord to say that? And yet Edwards concludes, such However, was not the language of Christ's heart, but on the contrary, his love held out and he resolved in the midst of agony to yield himself up to the will of God and to enter into the furnace of divine wrath. In your Savior's darkest hour, his love for you remains resolved. His obedience to the Father compels him forward. In fact, I think about Jesus here in the garden, and it's hard for me not to think of of the first man who was in the garden. Remember Adam, and God puts him in the midst of paradise and joy and delight, quite quite different than Jesus' garden at this moment. And he says, Adam, listen, you could do whatever you want and have whatever you want. There's just one rule. Don't eat from this tree right here. And and if you obey me, Adam, you're going to live. You will live if you obey me. Well, now Jesus is in the garden. And God says to Jesus what he has never said to anyone else, never will say to anyone else. He says, if you obey me, you will die. If you you obey me, you will know suffering unlike anyone has ever experienced before. If you obey me, I will forsake you. If you obey me, you will know hell. And Jesus obeyed because he loves you. You see, you see, does that help you see what an affront sin is to God? In light of what Christ has to do in order to redeem you, do you see how, how terrible sin is? And every time we sin, we're just adding another drop into the cup in which Jesus has to bear You see how what a slur it is to God to say, no, thank you, Jesus, I'll make it my own way. I got this covered. You see what an affront it is to God to say, you don't care. What more can he do to show you how much he cares? Jesus has every right to turn to you with tears in his eyes and blood upon his brow and say, it's your cup, 
You filled it. You drink it. But he does not. Instead, he freely takes it that he might look to you, Christian, he might look at you on the cross and say, I drink this cup which you have filled by your rebellion, and I leave it empty and dry for you. But it is, of course, only if you receive him. You understand that? Some people, and it is in my mind the height of foolishness, say, no, thank you. I, I will not take that. I'll take my own chance. Right? If, you know what? If you refuse him, you know what's in store for you? Well, the, the cup of God's wrath. You can read about it in Revelation 14 when God says they will drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into the cup of God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Let me... May I tell you, if you are not in Christ today, by the authority of God's word, you are in grave danger. I tell you that's not because it brings any pleasure to me, but I believe it is true from the bottom of my heart. If you will not let Christ be your sacrifice, your substitute, then you will have to pay for your own sin. You will have to drink the cup yourself. And the Bible says it is a cup of torment where you will have no, no rest day or night. It is a, a place of unending um, uh, hardship and and, and misery forever and ever and ever. And now Jesus, right now, he says, I'll drink it. Right? He'll drink, he'll take the wrath of God upon himself. He says, it's not how you live that gets you into my, my good graces, gets you into heaven. It's whether you accept me as your Lord and Savior, that you accept the sacrifice in which I've done upon your half. As Scripture says, if you would submit your life to Jesus, if you would even pray right now, this very moment in your heart, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died to pay the penalty for my sin, that he rose from the dead, and he is the soon returning king, and I bow my knee in submission to this king. Jesus, forgive me. And if you, you were to pray that, I tell you, the word of God says you will be saved and the wrath of God will pass from you. What greater blessing could you receive than Jesus' willingness to take this cup for you? It is a cup that Jesus shuddered to take and yet he was willing to do so. But of course, that's not all that Jesus prays. You notice, fourthly, there's a prayer of submission Again, in verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, as great as Jesus' desire is to avoid this, he has a greater desire to do the will of his Father. No matter what, no matter what the cost him, no matter how bitter or severe that will might be, he says, I'm going to submit I, oh, your will. He begins the prayer and says, okay, if you're willing. He ends the prayer and says, okay, I want to be clear. It's not my will that I want. I want your will. He submits to the Father. You know what submission is? I think sometimes we're confused with submission. Submission is doing something because an authority tells you to do it that you don't agree like someone, authority in your family, authority in government, authority in church, say, if I were in charge, I would make a different decision. I'm not in charge, and therefore I submit. Okay? So that's, submission, in other words, is not agreement. So if I, if I were to tell my kids after the service, I said, okay, kids, let's have ice cream. And they would all respond, we submit. Right? Okay? Okay? No, you're not submitting. You're agreeing. You think daddy's decision is right. Okay? See, submission is when, when someone says, do this, and you say, oh, well, I don't, if I were in charge, that's not what I would do, but I'm not in charge, and therefore I submit to you. 
And I think Jesus is teaching us about prayer here. That, that Jesus has this desire and he, he prays it earnestly. Matthew tells him he prayed it three times. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. Jesus lets his desires be known to God. But then after his desire, he expressing that, he yields his heart to God. He says, your will be done. I think that when we pray, there's really two mistakes we make. Sometimes we ask and we say, God, do this, do this, and if you don't do it, I'm gonna be angry, I'm gonna be surly, I'm gonna be upset, I'm gonna question your goodness, right? That's asking, but not submitting. And sometimes we make the opposite mistake. We don't pray at all. We say, well, God's in charge, and God's sovereign, and God's going to do what he's going to do, and so why do I even need to pray? He knows better than I do anyways, so I'm not going to ask at all. That's submission, but not asking. Please see that Jesus asks. He, we see this again and again and again in the teaching on prayer. Ask, ask, he says, ask the Father. Come to the Father and ask for what you need, what is in your heart, and then he also submits. He says, Father, you're right in all that you do, so your will be done. It's as if God is saying to his child, he says, child, I'm your dad. I want to know what you need. I want to know what's on your heart. Come and talk to me about that. But also, as my child, recognize that I know better than you, and so submit to my plan. Now, listen, this submission is, if if you've been around long enough, it is incredibly difficult at times. In in particular, in times of trouble and uncertainty and times of pain and fear, that you say to God in the midst of those times, Lord, whatever you ordain is right. And some of you have been in terribly desperate situations, right? Some of you have have experienced the death of a spouse or you lost your job or your, your child has cancer. And how do you go to God and say, okay, God, if this is what you will, then that's what I want, how do you do that? I remember it was in 2007. I was pastoring in a little rural county in southern Virginia, a town of 400 people. And uh, there was a little girl in our town named Emily. And uh, Emily's parents finally took her to the doctor because all the headaches she was ha- having. And uh, the doctor told her parents the news that no parent ever wants to hear. It's cancer. And uh, our church prayed and prayed and prayed. And many, many people prayed and prayed and prayed. I remember like it's yesterday, me with the church leaders and gathering around little Emily's bedside after she had gone through chemo. And she, of course, had lost all her hair at this time. And, and even beyond that, you could see how her skull was misshapen um, significantly because of all the tumors that were riddling her brain. And, and the leaders of the church, we, we just laid hands on her and we prayed and we prayed and we anointed her with oil and we begged her. Begged him. And just not us. The church was praying, and people in the community were praying, and people were praying for months and months. Good people, like salt of the earth. People just calling out to God, will you save? And I remember talking to God, how much glory, Father, would you receive if you just reached down and touched this little girl and sent that cancer away? You healed this girl. So Emily doesn't make it to her seventh birthday. She dies. And I remember, I remember preparing for that funeral. And to be honest, I said, okay. <laughs> I'm ready to leave the ministry if this is what it's about. I knew I'd be talking to hundreds of people at this funeral, and I'm wrestling with the Lord. And, I, and, I, and I'm asking God, I said, God, I don't get it. You ever there? I don't understand how this could be your will. 
I don't understand in light of all the people are asking, in light of the promises in your word, that this is what you choose. You ever been there? How do you get to the point where you're like Jesus and you say in the midst of trouble and pain, I want your will above all. I submit. I want your will, and you mean it. You know, I think Jesus is able to do so because he knows at least three truths. You know, Jesus knows that the suffering is purposeful. He knows why he's going to drink this cup. It's for your redemption. And if you know that the suffering in which you encounter has a purpose that makes all the difference. If you have pain in your stomach and you don't know why, or you're going into labor, that makes a big difference, doesn't it? The pain's the same, but it makes all the difference if you know that there is a purpose behind it. I tell you, beloved, based upon the word of God, Romans 5, Philippians 2, James 1, count it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness will bring about his, its full result that you may be complete, lacking nothing. There is purpose behind your suffering. Now, we don't often know what it is. Right? It's a mystery to us. But the Bible tells us there is purpose. And the great hymn writer captured it well, saying, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. In fact, we can know there's purpose because the second truth that will help you say, Not my will, but your will be done, is we know to whom we're praying. Jesus prays to whom? Father. He's praying to his dad, in fact, Mark says as much. In Mark's account, he says, Abba, Father. And I tell you, it makes all the difference in the world who you're praying to. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor up in um, Michigan, helped me understand these truths. And he told us the story. He says, imagine if you're a child and, and you're given a cup to drink and it smells awful and it's green and bubbling and you know it's going to taste terrible, right? It's going to be an awful to drink. It matters whether it's a stranger who gives it to you or your father. Right? That makes a difference, right? It's, it makes a difference. Is it your older brother or mom who's giving it to you, right? Okay? That's going to, it makes a difference. When we pray, you must remember who you are praying to. Let this passage remind you who you're praying to. God can't love you anymore. He can't. He gives, gives you it all. He is a loving, good father. You know your suffering is purposeful. You pray to a good and loving father. And the third truth that I think will help you is that you know how this all ends, don't you? Jesus did. Jesus knew he's going to rise again. He knew he was going to redeem those who love him and whom he loves. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, so for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You ever watch a, a sporting event, like your team is playing, but you recorded it, and you kind of, you glance to see what the score is before you watch it, right? And then you watch, and, and you know your team won, otherwise you wouldn't watch it, right? And, uh, and, and you get down by a couple runs, and you think, oh, this is going to be good, right? You're actually excited. But if you don't know the outcome, you get down by a couple runs, you get tense and irritable, and one by, one by one, people slowly kind of leave the room, right? 
it makes, it makes a difference knowing how it's going to end. What if I told you, when you, when you turn 62, or, or pick your age, whatever it is, okay? You, when you turn 62, everything bad in your life, all the hardship, all the trouble, all the difficulty, and all the pain will end. Done. Be done forever. In fact, all of it will be turned on its head and will actually come back to you as a blessing. Do you think that might help you endure the trouble in which you are in? But you do know that, don't you, Kristen? That's true. That one day, there's coming a day when all the sadness and trouble and hardship is going to be undone. I mean, you know how your story ends, right? And that we're coming into a day in which we shall live forever in the promised land, right? There, the, the, there is a, we do live happily ever after. There is a neverland, and we are all headed there, and it will be a place of unbroken holiness and unceasing worship and unhindered joy in the presence of our God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So in in this little span of life, you will have trouble and so will I, but know there is purpose in it. It is according to your Father's good plan and one day you will come into eternal glory and you just might find yourself able to pray, not my will, but your will be done. I submit to you. Lastly, that leads us in briefly to the necessity of prayer. I mentioned that he went to the garden with his friends. You saw that up in verse, what is it, verse 39 and 40, but look down in verse 45. And he rose from prayer, and he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. So Christ has come, and he's come to prepare for the hours of darkness that he's about to face through prayer. And he, he brings his disciples with him, and he says, okay, you all need to prepare for the hours of darkness too. It's going to be hard on you. And so I want you all to pray. He tells them that up in verse 40, uh, verse uh, 40. Yeah, he says, pray. And then he comes back, and rather than praying, they're, they're taking a nap. They think this is a good time to sleep. Now, we're told why they're sleeping, because he says there in verse 45, they're praying for sorrow. And yeah, admittedly, this has been a, a rough day. Because it's, remember, it started with the Passover, and that's like, the, that's like Christmas. I mean, that is the, the height of celebration. And you get to the Christmas celebration, and Jesus says, oh, by the way, this all pointed to me. And what it tells you is I'm going to die. And uh, my body's going to be broken, and my blood is going to be spilled. And by the way, one of you guys is going to bring it about. One of you is to betray me. And then, oh, I had a conversation with the devil, and he wants all of you. And he's coming after you, Peter, specifically. And Peter says, not a chance. He says, Peter, actually, before the sun rises, you're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times. Now, that's an emotional day, isn't it? And that's hard. And, and here they are, and... and and they're sleeping, right, but why? For sorrow. And you think, okay, well, that's understandable, isn't it? If there's any, I understand you, you just kind of crash after this. But, but notice what Jesus says. Oh, okay, I understand. It's been a hard day. You guys should get some rest. No. Verse 46. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, this is the second time he has told them, pray to avoid temptation. What's the temptation? Well, he doesn't tell us here, but I think he's referring back to verse 31. When he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we said that you there is plural. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you all. That he's after you all. He wants to destroy you all. 
Can, imagine, can you imagine if Satan specifically asked about you? Like, meant, like your name. I, I want a daughter. Well, I want so-and-so. And, he, and, he, and he, he's going to, this day, he's going to act, today, he's going to actively come after you. I'm telling you today, I have insight. Satan talked to God about you, and God said, go get him, and he's coming after you. What do you do? Do you sleep? <laughs> I'd lock myself in a room, I think, and hide all, you know, just hide in there, right? What, what are they doing there? Can you imagine sleeping? And what, what would you do? Well, I think, I think you would talk to God, wouldn't you? I think you'd take your Bible and spend the day in the Word and in prayer. You would seek God's protection. You would pray. But these men, they, they, they fall asleep. The Messiah comes to them and says, the devil's going to get you today. And they decide to sleep. And Jesus finds them, verse 46. You can see his frustration. He says, what are you doing? Don't you realize what's happening? Pray. Wake up and Pray. Right? Do you actually think you can do this on your own? Temptation is coming. By the way, I think Jesus would have liked a nap. Right? I think he, he's had a rough day. And I, 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 I'm speculating here, but I wonder, what would have happened if Jesus did not pray? What, what would, have ha- would he have succeeded in his own strength? Was that angel strengthening essential for him? Was that just kind of an extra? Or is that what gets him through, that help from heaven? I, I wonder if part of the reason... Jesus is praying is that he too will not succumb to the demonic temptation to walk away from the Father's plan that he is about to face. Rise and pray. Do you pray? Do you you spend time in prayer? Is that part of your life, part of your relationship with God? Do you think that might be necessary? Or do you think maybe, well, Jesus is getting a little carried away here. It's kind of like, you know, preachers use hyperbole. They exaggerate. Maybe, maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe, maybe prayer will be nice, kind of like nice religious exercise and give some blessings. But it's probably not essential. Do you, do you think that? Well, what do these men do in the coming minutes? It's not even hours. When they're time to stand with Jesus and his greatest need, what do they do? They, 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 they reject him, run away. What did Jesus do? facing that same opposition. Well, he stands alone, doesn't he, and faces it. Well, what's the difference? Well, there are many. I I agree with that. But at least one difference is the apostles did not pray, and Christ did. They did not pray, and they fell. Christ prayed, and he remained strong. And and I I tell you this morning, I ask you this morning, do you want to be righteous? Do you, want to, do you want to grow? I don't know if you ever feel like I've just kind of been at the same level. It's not really advancing. You want, to, you want to feel growing godliness and Christ-likeness and victory over sin. You want to get past the constant recurring sin in your life. I'm telling you, if you do not regularly pray, you will fail. Because Satan seeks to sift you too. He's after you. Sin beckons you throughout the day. You ought to pray that you may not enter into temptation because you do not have the strength to resist it yourself. You must pray. Even as Jesus taught and we considered this morning, Father, lead me not into temptation. We need to despair of our own strength, despair of our own efforts, and continually devote ourselves to expressing our need and desperation for God. God, rise and pray is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to do so as we begin this prayer week. 
that you would express this week desperation to God and dependence to God, even as I shared in Sunday school just an hour or so ago, that, that maybe you don't have any regular practice of prayer during the day. You don't have any plan. You don't, you don't set it out. You don't schedule. You don't have a place. I would encourage you this week for the next seven days, just see what happens. You would rise and say, I am going to open my Bible. I'm going to read through this book, whatever it might be, and I am going to spend time in prayer. And see what difference that makes in your life as God comes and gives you strength. That God, by his grace, I pray and hope that he will transform Hamilton Baptist Church into a praying people. May we together obey our Lord and rise and pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he did not think prayer to be unnecessary but essential to his obedience, how much more is it for us? And we are thankful that we are reminded, I think, and very powerful, and admittedly, I think it is a troubling story. The cost of our redemption is beyond our comprehension, and yet he knowingly and willingly took it for us. And we thank you today for that, and shall forevermore, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen.